Hello, I'm Sarah Vine, and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Male Plus. I am joined this week and every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Coming up on today's show, the Queen missed the state opening of Parliament this week for the first time in 59 years. We will be talking to royal biographer and Daily Mail writer slash genius Robert Hardman about what this absence might mean. Patron, the Jack Russell, has been awarded a medal by Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky for services to the country. After sniffing out 200 landmines, we'll be talking to a former British Army dog handler about these brave animals. Plus, put down that packet of crisps. A new survey has found that Brits don't realise how many calories we're consuming when we eat between meals. We'll be talking to Nesta, the charity who commissioned the survey about the reality of snacks. Imogen. Mm. Crisps. Oh, don't even talk. Do you know, they are part of my five a day. I do think... You are queen of crisps. I am queen This is the only reason we're doing this story (laughs) is because you eat more crisps than anyone else I have ever met. And you are thin. No, I'm not thin. Um, Are you a crisporexic? I think it's uh, half the reason why I roll out of bed in the morning. I am obsessed with crisps. I do remember, this is a pathetic story, when I went to Russia a thousand and one years ago, I flew back from Vladivostok, an 11 and a half hour flight, to land in the same Mm. country... And I remember going to the only shop in the whole of Moscow that sold crisps and bursting into tears when they only had salt and vinegar rather than cheese and onion. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I like a crisp. <laughs> what is your favourite crisp, oh, would you say? Do you know what? I would say it's a smoky bacon. Is it? It's got to be it? a walk of smoky bacon. <laughs> a walk of smoky bacon. Yeah, I tell you what I really hate. I really hate post crisps. Oh, they're disgusting. I... Those ones that they do at the moment, which are made out of truffles, they make oh. me feel ill. So that's like eating earwax. Oh, it's disgusting. Anyway. No, they're revolting. Um, I don't like a posh crisp. And the, actually, the only one I really can't stand is a prawn cocktail. No. I like What's It. <gasps> oh, I love a What's It. And I like the way it stained your fingers orange. <laughs> It does. Anyway, we're very bad for even saying that they're that they are very bad for you. Obviously, crisps are terrible, and mm. so we're going to have a proper sensible conversation yes. later about the crisps. Mm. But you're in the countryside. I am in the countryside. I'm writing a book. Obviously, again, book fifty three. <laughs> um, you know. uh, anyway, I'm typing away. But the only thing that is distracting me from the typing is. The brilliant Wagatha Christie. Obviously, it's a pretty literary thing uh, <laughs> with Rebecca Vardy and Colleen Rooney. I'm quite I know, enjoying the I know. fashion, and actually, to start off with. Can I just say, have you noticed how awful Wayne Rooney looks? <gasps> I know. He's 37 I know. and he looks about 59. He's always looked like Shrek, though. He has always looked like Shrek. But, well, he but... looks worse than Shrek now. <laughs> yes. Well, also because <laughs> I, I don't think the hair's worked, to be fair. Mm terrible it's he's, just very he's strange because he's a better and leisure wear yes but he's a sportsman so you expect him to look sort of sporty and mm. and good but he doesn't but yeah the Wag- wagatha christie is sort of replacing um amber and johnny a bit it's, but what, Although, in, a, in a sort of better way because it's sort of harmless it's like an episode of eastenders with a lot more cash yes yes <laughs> <laughs> and better clothes absolutely better clothes. Although I think uh, Rebecca Vardy's sort of got the wrong memo because she keeps turning up looking like she's about to have lunch with Amal Clooney afterwards. Yes. Like she is the lawyer. Whereas Colleen <laughs> is basically dressing for a trip up the high street. with some... she's, uh, she's doing soccer mum, isn't she? Yes. 
exactly. Mm. Yeah. Like, doing very attractive like stuff now. This, in. This, is no, you know, this is really not very important to me. Whereas Rebecca's no. got her game face on and she's, you know, she's throwing she the kitchen sink at it. But it is just, if you think about it, it's just a ridiculous waste of money. Why can't they just resolve this? I mean, I don't understand why they just have a, a fight in Weatherspoons or something. <laughs> The Queen missed the state opening of Parliament this week after an 11th hour cancellation. Buckingham Palace had repeatedly said that she hoped to attend, but on the day Prince Charles had to stand in for her. It's the first time in 59 years that Her Majesty has missed the ceremony. And joining us now is Robert Harbin, Royal Biographer and Daily Mail columnist. I must just say, it's a, there's a hilarious typo here. It says Daily Mail communist. You are not a <laughs> communist, are you, Robert Harbin? Uh, I, I can clear that one up straight away. <laughs> I have to say, I found this incredibly moving. I mean, just the whole state opening of Parliament without the Queen just feels like, I don't know, bread without marmalade. <laughs> well, I thought you wrote a very a very nice column on it, Sarah. And um, I you. think you reflected what a lot of people will feel, which is here is this famous constitutional pageant, this sort of the quintessential role of a constitutional monarch. And we're just so used to seeing her sitting mm. there and, beginning you know my lord's pray be seated i mean it's it just sort of you know it's been going on for longer than we've all been alive and, and suddenly yeah. it's a male voice and it just sounds different i thought prince charles did a an excellent job i think you know he looked the part i mean obviously you know i'll be surprising given that he was born to it but i mean mm. you know it was it, it would must have been a tricky moment for him and i think he mm handled it just right. But nonetheless, you, like many people, would have felt a kind of passing of the battle. It was that physical manifestation of reality, which is that really she is coming to the end of her reign. And, you know, none of us would wish it so, but that's just the way it is. It was and also the lonely it, old crown, I think, on the yeah. throne. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it's just a reminder of, of how important symbolism is. I mean, you know, modernisers always like to sort of talk about, oh, it's time we got rid of all this outdated flummery. But actually moments like that you, you know we talk about the crown for a reason it's where sovereignty resides it's incredibly important the symbols matter i thought it was a big moment also for camilla she looked i thought she looked incredibly sweet and rather nervous hmm. yes i mean that for her that that for all of them i mean for the who cambridge as well it's you know mm. how do you play this moment you you've got to look solemn you can't look too solemn because it, it implies that sort of you know bad news around the corner you can't look too happy it's a, an occasion that demands utter neutrality because, you know, it really mm. is the moment when the monarch has to betray no sort of feelings or thoughts about anything. And that applies to the Prince Charles too. So, you know, he had to deliver a speech. He had to deliver probably the most boring speech of his life. You know, <laughs> normally when he makes a speech, you, you know, you get a bit of, well, these gentlemen, for what it's worth, you know, and he, he's a good speech maker. And on this occasion, he, is, yeah. he had to be not a good speech maker. He had to be completely tone neutral. I mean, it is going to be very difficult to follow her act, isn't it? I mean, exceptionally yeah, hard. Uh, it, it, I mean, you know, of course. I mean, she, she's been our longest reigning, longest serving monarch. I mean, she is just part of the, the sort of national landscape, if you like. Yeah. I mean, she's just she's just here. She's We're just so used to seeing her. You know, on our coinage, on our banknotes, on our stamps, mm. and and she's she's part of, of of life. So yes, that's the nature of of, of an institution like the monarchy. I mean, uh, yeah, you've got a, a head of state who's known fourteen U.S. presidents. I mean, there's no one in America ever who has met and known fourteen presidents, no. um, but she has, and that just makes her such an institution. 
But, you know, this is a, a, an institution that also that evolves. It's a family mm. business and it's lasted a thousand years. And, you know, towards the end of Queen Victoria's reign, we had the same sort of sentiments. But, you know, but the seventh proved to be a very popular king. Mm. Do you think we're just beginning to realise that actually, I mean, we've always sort of known she wasn't, it wouldn't be around forever, but it suddenly feels a bit like it's all disappearing very quickly. No, I, I, I think we need to step back slightly and, and maybe instead of this sort of declinist um, narrative that, we're, you know, we're, we're, that all, the, all the media are, are sort of adopting at the moment, I, mm. I think we should look at it the other way around. Isn't it remarkable that in her 10th decade, she's still doing so much? Because she mm. is. I mean, yesterday she was holding a Privy Council meeting. OK, it's done virtually, but there she is mm. uh, with her Privy Council. I mean, she would have been having her audience with the Prime Minister last night, except he was abroad. So, you know, there's still a lot going on. Yes, of course, she's having to sort of scale back and delegate. But I, I think we should, you know, be sort of celebrating in a way the, the, the amount of uh, stuff she's still doing, as opposed to, you know, always lamenting the stuff she isn't. I mean, I think it's also quite good to ease Charles in, isn't it? Because I think it would just be too difficult and traumatic for him to suddenly start doing everything from nothing. Yes, I mean, he, he is our, in the same way she's our longest reigning monarch, he's our longest serving um, heir to the throne that we've ever course, had. You yeah. know, he's been, uh, he's been in public life. I mean, it did occur to me, looking at him in the Lord on Tuesday morning, that, you know, there he is surrounded by all his eminent sort of often superannuated politicians. He's actually mm. been in public life longer than anybody else in that chamber. <laughs> you know, he started doing not just walkabouts, but his visits, meeting, you know, communities, hearing their problems traveling the country, shaking hands. He started that in the 60s. Um, there's no one in Parliament today who's been doing all that as long as he has. So, I mean, he already comes with an extraordinary wealth of experience. But you're right. I mean, you know, some of these roles, uh, you know, they are, even for some of his experiences him, it's, it's a new experience. And, mm. and it's good that he's you know, taking on the, these roles now. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is extraordinary that she's still doing anything at 96. I mean, I'm only 55 and I'd quite like to retire next year, to be honest. Thanks, Robert. I mean, I just, I just think the thing is, she's like a parent, isn't she? She's like everyone's mother. And it's just, it's when you see somebody who's always been so capable and always been there and always been a solid rock and just a kind of constant when everything else is all over the place, the thought that's entered your head, that which is that it's not going to be there forever, that's the. I think that's the difficult yeah, thing. Yeah, I think you're right. Then was the element of her not wanting to appear vulnerable in public. Mm. So the idea that which, when she does something, she wants to still sort of smash it out of the park, as it were. So the yeah. idea that you come in with two yeah, sticks, wants, not looking for She brilliant. definitely wants to look the part. She doesn't mm. want exactly. to do anything half-heartedly. And I think that goes to part of the reason why we aren't seeing her at things. And it's a hard one for the panelists to explain because it's, on the one hand, they're saying that she's absolutely fine. Well, if she's absolutely fine, why isn't she here? Mm. Um, and it's because she, you know, is very conscious of, you know, mm. who she is, her position. She wants to look the part. You know, she doesn't mm. want to look like a, a weak or infirm queen. She is the sovereign. She wants to look mm. like that. And these things matter and good luck to her. I mean, you know, people are sort of saying, oh, why doesn't she put on sort of comfy shoes or whatever? <laughs> um, she's the queen and she wants to be the queen. And uh, yeah. frankly, at this stage in her life, after this extraordinary reign, I couldn't care less what she, what she wants, she should get, I'm afraid. Yeah, and, I agree. And, that's that. and the rest of us are in no position to criticise her, you know. She, she's well, but number wasn't one. wasn't she reportedly slightly horrified by Princess Margaret in a wheelchair? 
their idea that she doesn't want to be wheeled in Parliament. I think people are sort of overthinking that. I mean, that, that obviously was, was quite a sort of strong image, but I, she's not been particularly vain. Well, she's not a vain person. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's it, I don't think she's thinking, how does it look? I think it's just sort of, how do I feel? I want to play a full part in something. But I, I, you know, I think over the course of the Jubilee, there'll be something she doesn't, uh, something she doesn't turn up at, and something she does, and um, you know, we, we'll just have to sort of see on the day. The thing to always bear in mind: just keep looking at the court circular and things like that, and you'll see that she's, you know, she's still receiving ambassadors and incoming and outgoing commanding officers and prime ministers mm. and all that, and the red boxes are still turning up. And yeah. outside a door every afternoon and, and by the following morning they get done. So, um, yeah. you know, she's still still very much in charge. I'd have ditched those long ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Robert. And well, let's not forget that Robert has a book about Queen. <laughs> Robert, Queen of our times. Book, Queen of our times. Queen of our times, published by Macmillan. Um, available and, in uh, all good bookstores now. And uh, you, you, you were telling me that you um, accidentally signed a book to someone called Nigel instead of Nigella, or was it? Uh, no, it was near. I was, I was meant to be signing one to someone called Nicola, and I wrote Nicholas. So if there's a Nicholas out there. So if there are any Nicholas <laughs> listeners, we can give you a free copy of the book. Oh, good idea. Pre signed by Robert it, Hart. It's, it's a perilous <laughs> business, this book signing thing. You don't want yes. to do what my friend Andrew Roberts did when he was signing his biographies of Churchill after a lecture. and uh, got engaged in an, an argument with someone about the Battle of Stalingrad and suddenly found that he dedicated the book to Adolf. Um, and at this point, it was completely unsellable and they had to throw it away because there was no way he was going to find anyone who was going to buy that one. Genius. <laughs> well, that's right. well, we have a spare, Nicholas, for anyone who would like it. They can write in, email me, sarah.fine at thedailymail.co.uk. Thanks, Robert. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has honoured Patron at Jack Russell for potentially saving lives after sniffing out more than 200 landmines hidden in Ukrainian woodland. Joining us now is Scott Godman, a former British Army dog handler who served in Northern Ireland. Hi, Scott. Hi. So I was obsessed with this story because I used to have a Jack Russell who sadly got run over. And he was, as far as I was concerned, he was a god. And um, he was just the best dog in the whole world. I think Jack Russells are just heaven. And he was so easy to train and just so clever and just brilliant. Anyway, but I would never Mars, been a, wasn't he? He was Sarah? called Mars, yes, because he was Mars, the dog of war. That was why he was named Mars. And he used to kill a lot of rats and mice. And also he killed both of my children's hamsters. But that was an accident. That was not intentional. Anyway, Scott, how do you train a dog to defuse a mine? And are Jack Russell's the best dogs in the world, yes or no? Obviously, yes. <laughs> Jack Russell's feel yes. <laughs> so it's a lot of patience, a lot of rewards, a lot of confidence building in dogs. Basically, reward-based training. So they put the nose to a certain scent mm. and they get a reward, whether it's a, a toy or food. It's all enjoyable for the dog. It has to be either what way. So are the best dogs the ones that do enjoy sniffing things out, like who, that are naturally happy to go foraging for things, like Jack Russells, which are obviously bred for ratting, aren't they? Yeah, the military use more like Spaniels, Labradors, dogs with a lot of drive, because they, they want that drive to, to carry on going and work and work and work, and the, the work, work ethic stops being there. Mm. Not every Spaniel or every Labrador, for instance, has got that drive to do it. So mm. it's a lot of genetics that they work with. So getting the best dogs and the best genes to do that job. 
Can you train them to do almost anything, to find almost anything? Because the other day I met two police dogs in a petrol station, <laughs> one that did bloods and the other one that did corpses, uh, which Good I grief. thought was particularly interesting. Yeah, cadaver dogs. So, yeah, you can train a dog to, to find anything. They're even training dogs at the moment to find COVID. Really? Um, yep. There's um, dogs for diabetes, for blood sugar. So your levels are low, they'll let you know. Do you smell different if your blood sugar levels are low? Yeah, you've got a, a different scent on your body so they, they can detect it. If you look at a tracking dog for the police, they follow the scent of somebody that's, say, burgled a house. And mm. as they're running, their endorphins are coming. So everything coming off the body, their adrenaline, that's what the dogs are smelling. That's what the, the scent's after. Good grief. So, it, yeah, it's really, really intelligent. So the, the dog's nose, we do not give enough credit for. Mm. They're better than, say, 50 people to find something. Wow. And, yeah, it's incredible when you see them working. And these guys, Scott, who I met, they took their dogs home with them. What are they like at home, these dogs? They must be quite um, hyperactive. Well, if you've been out of work all day and you've been you've been working and working and working and then you go home, you're not hyperactive no more because you've, you've worked for the day, so you're a bit tired. Yeah. It's the same with a lot of dogs. But it also depends on that dog and the certain genetics in that dog. Like, I've got two Rottweilers, two Belgian Malinois, Cani Corso and two Puppies. And they're all different levels. The, the Malinois just want to work all day long and they don't have a shut-off. What's a, Mal- on, what's a Malamar? I've never heard of that breed. What is it, a Malawar? A Belgian, a Belgian Malamar is a Belgian Shepherd. Right. It's what the police and the forces are using more now because they're smaller than a German Shepherd, but they've got a lot more energy. The, the ones you see on YouTube jumping off buildings and doing crazy things, mm. they're a fit, energetic dog, and they just they just don't want to stop. It's a dog that actually got Bin Laden. <laughs> so, Scott, um, Imogen and I... <laughs> You're going to laugh at us now. Imogen and I have both got Lassa Apsos. <laughs> yep. Do they... I, I work with them as well, sir. <laughs> do they have any aptitude? Because my Lassa Apso just really likes to sit on the sofa and then Can bark at squirrels. Anything, anything other than watch television. <laughs> yeah, they've got quite, they've got quite um, an intelligent head on them. It's just that people see them as a small dog, so they don't work them the same way that you would a German Shepherd. Mm. So small dogs usually get away with a lot more and they're usually a lot more, shall we say, naughty. Mm. My last app, so is so naughty. And yeah, lazy, because it's small, Sarah. Yours really. is quite lazy. Mine is lazy <laughs> and naughty. And also she doesn't, she's, she's, also, she's also really grumpy. I mean, mm, she doesn't moody. like other dogs, no. No. Scott, do you have to start so, early? So do they have to start as a puppy? Or could Sarah and I possibly could you fix our, do- our Scott, useless Scott, lap dogs? Could you, would, you be available, <laughs> would you be available next Thursday to fix our useless lap dogs, please? Thank you. Of course. <laughs> uh, so the, the thing is, you can change a dog. It doesn't matter of the age. It's easier as a puppy mm. because you've not got habits that they've had for years. Mm. But you can change a dog at any time, any stage. It's just the older they are, the longer they've had the bad habits, the, the more time that it's going to take to change it. The most interesting thing anyone ever said to me about dog training, and this was when I had my Jack Russell, and it was a dog trainer who I worked with in order to train him. And she said, the thing you have to understand, Sarah, is that dogs don't speak English. So it's no good (laughs) shouting at it. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm having a conversation. <laughs> exactly. Or saying, how are you today? Because they're just looking at you and they just think, oh, they don't know what you're talking about. And so I think it's it, it's important that we kind of understand that they're... What, what, is, what would you say is the, the language of a dog? Is it just the nose? Or are, is there, are there other things? Body language, the nose, um, taste... You've got to treat a dog as a dog. Mm. And the way that the world is going now is we're treating them as humans. Mm. We're humanizing them. And it's not fair on a dog. No. The best respect you can give a dog is treat it as a dog. Mm. It's giving it what, it's, what, what a dog's needs are. So certain breeds need different things. Yeah. I've to a lot of people that have dogs that they don't understand, say, a basset dog, basset hound. It's barking all day long. And that's what they're bred for. They mm. bark because they found something. And when you start explaining to people the reasons why dogs have got these bad habits, it's usually down to DNA yeah. and the genetics of the dog. And then they start understanding more about the dog and then they start treating them more as a dog and as that breed. Right. Really interesting when you start getting down to genetics and everything else. And do they understand bravery? Because this little dog, Patron, has, has been awarded for bravery. Do you think the dog will understand that that was a big deal and the medal meant something? Or do you think it was just, you know, going to the office for the day? I, I think he'll understand that he's getting a lot of fuss and a lot of attention. Mm. But he will understand in the same way that we understand what he's done and what he's got it for. Because, like you said earlier on, talking to a dog, you might as well be talking a different language because they don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. So he'll understand, oh, I've got I've got a big stick tonight. I've got this. Oh, that's good. I've got loads of attention from lots of people. But he will actually understand what he's done because mm. he's gone and done his everyday job. Yeah. My dog's main language, I think, is chicken. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got dogs like that, but main language is trade. <laughs> Literally, the only thing he really understands is chicken. As long as it's got, if it's chicken, it's fine. If not, it's just foreign. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, I, I mean, I'm, imp- I'm so impressed by people who can train dogs to do things because I have tried very hard with my dogs, but I don't know. I'm, I'm obviously just not very. I mean, I was fine with the Jack Russell, but I just, I mean, the the last app so has completely eluded me. I can't make her do anything. And Sarah, taking internet shopping is not going to give it any reward. That's all I'm going no. to say to you. No. <laughs> Making them use the nose, even something as simple as scatter feeding, throw the food on the floor outside and they've got to use the nose to find all the bits of food instead of it's just in a bowl. Yeah. Something as simple as that gives really? your dog a little bit more enrichment. Okay. And, and it, it, there's that many things that you can do to make your dog's life a lot better. She has this really odd habit that she does, which is that she gets her food out of her bowl and then she takes it somewhere to eat it. Mm. Does yours do Does that? Does she take it to where Normally you are? Normally your carpet. Yeah, she'll take it to where I am, which is mainly, you know, either the sofa or my desk or wherever it is. So that that, I... That's usually a, nerve, a little bit of nerves because a dog will eat by itself because it's a little bit nervous. So it'll bring its food to where you are ah, to eat. okay. So you can you can change that around by doing a little bit of hand feeding, playing with the food, winding them up and then throwing it yeah. so they've got to chase it. Then the food becomes more fun. And especially if you leave the food down all day, that they're going to pick and bring it to you, pick and bring it to you. I've got two dogs and the second dog is a big fat Bichon who just literally absorbs yeah. any food that comes his way. And so I think she's possibly a little bit worried that he's going to try and eat her food if she doesn't eat it quickly yeah. enough. Maybe that's what it is, yeah. It gives these ne- little bit of nerves though when they're bringing the food to you. Yeah. Scott, I think you should start a dog counselling service. I love I you. Think yes, this do- is where you're, I think this is a really good idea. You could phone in with your dog that, problems. The hardest part of dog training is training an owner. Yes. Ah. <laughs> That'll be you, Sarah. <laughs> yes, I am untrainable, Scott. 
It's all to do with fun. The more fun you have with your dog, with rules and boundaries, the yes. better it gets. I mean, I'm sat here with um, two Belgian Malmois at the moment, lunatics, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Oh, well, I, family dogs. I love the idea of you training me to be a better dog that's owner. A that's a very, idea. that's an excellent idea, Scott. I love that idea. Probably impossible, but thank you very much. And thank you very More much for all of your work with these lovely animals that Imogen and I clearly don't understand properly at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you, Scott. You will be one day. <laughs> that was Scott Godman former British Army dog handler who now runs Godman's Dog Academy in Hull. I think I might have to go up there and be retrained. A new survey from Nesta, the innovation agency for social good, has found that we Brits are underestimating how many calories we are consuming when we snack. The survey found that people are often eating twice as many calories as they think they are, particularly in relation to crisps. So joining us now is Lauren Bosebyer, the Deputy Director of Nesta's Healthy Life Team. Hi, Lauren. Um, I was really struck by this story this week because the story was that basically eating a packet of crisps a day can make you put on, was it two stone over the course of a year? So it was one stone. One stone. Definitely over the course of a year, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because I do think the Brits have always snacked too much. I mean, I remember I grew up in Italy and you never had any food in between meals you just had meals and then no food in between and then when I came to live in England it was like the corner shops were just full of things that you could just buy for almost no money at all and then eat and they were just delicious like crisps and Kit Kats and chocolate bars and things like that and I do think there has always been a sort of kind of corner shop culture hasn't there of just grabbing something that's very long life and full of salt and sugar and just shoving it down because you're hungry it's just bizarre. Yeah, so I, I think, we, yeah, we'd, we'd agree that it's kind of, it's our environment around us that kind of mm. has that impact. So kind of where is near for us to kind of easily go and kind of grab food, as you say, kind of mm. it's where we live, work and shop and that kind of immediate mm. environment and the impact that kind of promotions and advertising and that availability of kind of the higher availability of unhealthy foods in our kind of areas that, that has that impact and kind of tempt us um, to opt for options when we kind of would ideally make kind of healthier, better choices if, um, if we could. Yes, I mean, we talk about, I mean, people talk about an obesogenic society. Do you think we live in an obesogenic society? Well, obesity is obviously at a kind of very high rate. And I think kind of our, our kind of focus here is really about how we think about changes in the environment to do that. I think we all would recognize it's really, really hard on an individual level. You know, you've got Mm. lots of things going on in your life to also be kind of thinking about healthy eating. And Mm. healthy eating is kind of, it's not new either. So we kind of know it's a good thing to do. So it's kind of about what our environment can do and kind of how the kind of companies in it and kind of the role for government in order to kind of prompt us to kind of make some some better decisions and just make it easier for us all. But I mean, governments over the years have sort of, you know, proposed things like a sugar tax, whatever. What needs to happen, presumably, is for it to not be financially viable, really, for food manufacturers to make these very obesogenic foods, which are invariably the cheapest thing you can eat, aren't they? I mean, it's it's always struck me as sort of rather counterproductive, the fact that, you know, an apple costs more than a packet of crisps. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think I think just to kind of say on kind of some of the restrictions that have come in place and you kind of mm. mentioned the soft drinks levy is mm. one of the benefits of that as well is that it actually kind of prompts manufacturers to change mm. some of their recipes and ingredients as well. So food does become healthier. So kind of foods have fewer calories in the meaning that it's kind of closer to what our expectations are and just makes it mm. a bit easier for us to um, eat a bit healthier, eat a bit kind of eat some fewer calories. Um, mm. So that's kind of one of the, I guess, one of the hidden benefits as well of, of kind of pushing for levies and things. And of course, now we've got, I think it was last week that the World Health, Health Organization said that, said that the Brits were on course to become the fattest nation in Europe because of our Deliveroo culture. I mean, that's a whole new level, isn't it, of convenience food that um, has entered the culture. Yeah, yeah, and I think it is it is that kind of ease of ease of mm. access that definitely plays kind of a huge a kind of huge role in that. So anything that kind of companies can do, governments can do to really kind of help us kind of take a step in the right direction to make it easier to offer healthy things. The trouble with any sort of sugar tax or salt tax or fat tax or whatever it is you want to call it is that everyone says, oh well, it will affect the consumer. But actually, is it possible to do it so that, in fact, the onus is on the manufacturers and so that you can incentivize them to make food that is less calorific in, in effect? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it is one of the benefits of those types of restrictions as well as that it kind of pushes people and pushes consumers, I should say, to kind of think about what is in their food and how it can be healthier mm. so that foods don't come into that category of where they might they might be in the kind of restrictive category so mm. it does push businesses to do that and that's one thing yeah we're really kind of really keen for is to think about how do we actually change some of the ingredients the recipes of kind of lots of our popular foods today in slight mm. ways in small ways in order to just make this all easier for us all i once was talking to a nutritionist who said to me that if you just have two fingers of a kit kat every day that will make you put on a stone in a year which is yeah, actually yeah. Well, extraordinary when you think about it. Because two yeah. fingers of a Kit Kat is 60 extra calories. Is that right? Or 120? I don't know. I can't remember. But I always think people don't get, you know, you don't get fat overnight. You know, you sort of wake up one morning and realize that you've put on two stone and you don't quite know where it came from or how it happened, but just that yeah. it did happen. It's that stealth putting on weight, isn't it? Yeah. And it's that kind of um, small and sustained change that can have mm. a real difference and I think that's the thing people don't quite realize and this is what this research has shown as well that Mm. you don't quite realize those kind of small changes that Mm. kind of 240 calories here or there per day Mm. can actually make quite a difference to kind of over the course of a year that is to what you are consuming and to your weight overall. The other issue is is that we've got so used to when it comes to dieting or to trying you know to trying to lose mm-hmm. weight, is we've got so used to the idea that it you know that we need to do it quickly so that six weeks yeah. two months we expect results. But of course, if you just stop eating that packet of crisps for a year, you will theoretically I, I would assume you will lose that weight. It'll just take a year. People put on weight over long periods of time, don't they? And then they expect to lose it quite quickly. And of course, that that really isn't the case. You know, it's a long process, whichever way you're going. Yeah, and I think the kind of slow, small, sustained approach is also mm. more achievable. You can make small, kind of more drastic changes on a short term, which mm. actually become quite difficult to kind of continue doing over a long period of time. Mm. And therefore, you end up kind of putting the weight back on and, and mm. kind of not having the overall outcome that you want. So, mm. yeah, I think I think in part what our kind of polling has showed is, is it's kind of small, sustained changes can really make a difference. Yeah, combined with some, you know, some help so that we're not just living surrounded in an environment that is just telling us to eat rubbish the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I shall put away that packet of crisps. (laughs) (laughs) Or choose a slightly healthier one, yeah. (laughs) That was Lauren Bosebyer, the Deputy Director of Nesta's Healthy Life Team. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all of our podcast videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>